Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Uh, We're continuing in Acts, as you are familiar. We're in week 42. We've got about 20 left, and all of God's people said amen. It's been good for our souls to go through Acts. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels, and you'll get to Acts after that. If you hit Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, go back to the left. Acts 17 Verses 1 through 9 will be our primary text. Although we're going to turn our pages and type in uh, different spots in the Bible this morning, that's where we'll make our home, Acts 17, verse 1 through 9. And before we do that, we need a bit of a family moment. I want to share with you a little bit of what God is up to in our church. Um, Some of you may be more familiar than others. Um, I, I think the best way to describe it is I think what we are sensing by God's Spirit is that He is done with sin. He is done with some persistent sin that has been alive and well in marriages and individuals' hearts and in families. And I cannot tell you how difficult and yet beautiful it has been over the past few months to see confession, to see vulnerability, to see reconciliation, to see uh, exposure to the gospel because what the gospel exposes, the gospel heals. But here's my concern. My concern is the elders and I and our group leaders are just absolutely serving with such diligence, faithfulness, and they're, they're being entrusted, perhaps some of them, more than they've ever been entrusted in terms of discipleship, and God is using them mightily. But here's my concern. My concern is that some of us think that that exposure, that vulnerability, that confession is for some people, but not for others. That even in our groups, there can be division. Like, those are the crazy people that, like, confess sin every week. I'm sure glad I don't have anything like that. Literally, in saying that, you are revealing your self-righteousness. And therefore, that is the thing you need to confess. I am concerned that our church is being divided by those who are living vulnerably and those who are merely using the church as a commodity, a thing to get some sort of spiritual satisfaction. I get a sermon here, I get some community there, and I get that from other places and other things. And I, and I want to help us to see the biblical, the New Testament knows nothing of the commodity of the local church. What, what the scriptures teach us about biblical community is that we are exposed before God together that we are owned by his spirit, that we are owned by his light, and therefore we need to walk in that. And and I can't tell you like how joyful it is to walk through the difficulty and get to the other side, seeing Jesus, seeing forgiveness, seeing reconciliation. There is great hope in confessing sin to a God whose mercy is more. We just sang it. I wonder if you believe it. Sounded really good. Sound like a really good idea. Those who are in Christ live as if his mercy is more. Mercy is God's grace to not give you what you deserve, by the way. And what I have seen over and over again is more men and women are sharing your story of how the Lord has brought you out or how you're even in the middle of sin right now. I'm seeing his mercy is more. His mercy is more than sexual addiction. His mercy is more than um, conflict within marriage. His mercy is more than longing for children and longing to be married. His mercy is more than lying and deception and greed and self-righteousness. His mercy is more. And so my desire for our church is that we would all walk in that because I believe a holy and submissive church is a really useful one for the kingdom. And so we see God doing this. And and I just want to say before you, like, I am beginning to feel the weight in this. My wife has been so gracious in helping me to see how I carry too much of this. Uh, The elders and their wives have been incredibly um, uh, team-oriented in this. And so we're really grateful at what God is doing here. And yet we're beginning to feel the weight. Um, of it. Church is not about growing numerically. Church is about confessing and becoming more like Jesus, about discipling one another. And so that's what we see him doing. Thank you for that family moment. Now, Acts 17, 
verse 1 through 9, I think will continue to help us in this journey that God's Spirit is leading us because this is the, the story of how God's Spirit, that Jesus is leading the local church in the first century. So why don't you stand on up and we'll read Acts 17, 1 through 9. Little bird told me that Chad one up me and had everybody stand out of reverence for God's word last week. And so, not to be outdone, <laughs> Acts chapter 17, 1 through 9, hear this. These are the very words of God. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And none of them, or rather some of them, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. This is just a, this is, this verse, is, this passage is really important to me. Seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were dis disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken some money, taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? God, we are needy people, and we are desperate for mercy. We are desperate for grace. We are desperate for forgiveness. We are desperate for help, for correction, for purpose, for clarity, for peace, for comfort, for love. And so we thank you that all that we need, you give us in Christ. There is not a single longing, a single hunger pain of our soul that is not satisfied beyond measure through Christ. And so help us as we come to your word to believe that today, perhaps for the first time. And if that is true of our hearts, would we believe it more today? Would you engender within us a deeper belief and trust in Jesus today? That that would unite us as a church, that that would set us in the right course of what it looks like to live in accord with your will in this neighborhood and the surrounding neighborhoods in this region, that Jesus would be lifted high, that, that we in this moment would confess sin, that we wouldn't wait till tomorrow to apply a sermon, but that right now we'd hear from your spirit and be changed on the spot, that our hearts would be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that you would make us more like Jesus in these next few moments, we pray, because you're faithful to do that through your word. So we ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. You may be seated. Once again, we're following these missionaries. If you've been tracking with us the past couple of weeks, and you know we've been following Paul and Silas along with Luke, who's the writer of Acts, 
Recently, he's been uh, moving to this we language Luke has, and so where once he was reporting what he had heard from eyewitnesses, now he's reporting as an eyewitness. And so as he's going along, they are now going from Jerusalem where they've received word, clarification about the gospel, about what it is to include Gentiles, Greeks, non-Jews into the family of God, that they don't need to be circumcised in order to be welcomed. They need Jesus, that Jesus alone is the way in which they are engrafted, adopted into the family of God, the people of God, and therefore beneficiaries of the covenant promises of God. And so what they're doing is they're going back to the churches that Paul and his team visited on the first missionary journey. They're going to encourage them in this gospel word, and they're going to start new churches. And we pick up the story in verse 1, Acts 17. Now when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in as was his custom. With each new city that Paul goes to, he first visits the Jews. He goes to the Jewish synagogue. And here in Macedonia and Thessalonica, it's no different. This has been the pattern of his ministry, not only because of his philosophy of ministry and not just because this is what was natural for him. He is doing this because this falls in line with Jesus' command. Go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. It begins with God's people and then moves outward to the Gentiles. And therefore, if this name Thessalonica is familiar to us, it's likely because we're familiar with the first and second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonican Christians after he started a church there. So near the opening of that first correspondence, that first letter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul summarizes, gives us context for his team's ministry, his affection for his brothers and sisters in Macedonia when he wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 2. Hear these words. For you, yourselves, no brothers that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to proclaim to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives because you had become so very dear to us. Paul loves these people. Paul loves this church in Thessalonica. And so through suffering, through affliction and persecution, he and his team endured all of this so that they could share the gospel with them. So they could share the gospel with these men and women. You see, his affection was centered on this gospel. Three different times in that passage that I just read, he mentions the gospel. He makes it clear. This is why he went to Thessalonica. They came to preach. They came to preach the good news of Jesus. But this was not merely a message. It wasn't merely words that they desired to exchange. See, the preaching of the gospel is not merely an exchanging of words. It is a giving of self. It is a laying before them. After all, is this not the gospel? Jesus didn't come merely with words. He came as the word made flesh. Am I preaching to you yet? 
He didn't just come with something to say. He came in real space and real time. He didn't just have a message, but he had a mission. Not just to preach a sermon, but to offer himself as a ransom for many. And therefore, being so affected by that good news, Paul follows suit. Knowing the gospel is so central to his message and mission, Paul we would understand and do well to understand better what the gospel actually is. Because isn't it true, this is a great word we throw around all the time. Gospel-centered, gospel-grounded. Is that the gospel? What is the gospel? I like the gospel. I love the gospel. I believe the gospel. What is the gospel? I don't know. But it's great. It's good. It's good news. So what does the gospel actually mean? Now, the gospel affords us much. The gospel produces much. But it's important to understand before we uh, can look to what the gospel gives us, to understand what the gospel is in its substance. This is, in fact, what Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us next. Look at verse 2. Went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. For three separate Sabbath gatherings, three different weeks, he stays there at least three weeks, Paul reasons, he explains, he proves, and he proclaims what? The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And please notice, before we get to the specifics of what the gospel is, notice where he's getting it. Notice where the gospel is coming from. His understanding of the gospel, it was in the scriptures. He did not reason from his own experience. He didn't reason from his feelings. He didn't reason from his perspective. He didn't reason from his opinion. He didn't reason from his own ideas. Isn't that such good news? He reasoned from the scriptures. May this be true of us. May we not be people who reason and explain and prove from our perspective, but rather from the word of God. And not just the gospel, but rather in all things. Now he lays out some specifics here about the gospel. Let's look at them. The gospel is the reality in particular. Notice what he says about the suffering and the death of Jesus and saying ultimately that the gospel, look, look at that last quotation, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what does Paul actually proclaim? Not a message, but a person. He proclaims Jesus at its most elemental form, at its most absolute essence, at the core of the gospel. Jesus is there. Jesus is the gospel. The good news is never less than Jesus himself. To be even more precise, because I love it. I love being really precise. Notice what he says in particular about Jesus, that it is who he is as the Christ, the Lord. It is the proclamation of Jesus as Lord. Pastor and theologian John Piper says it this way in his helpful book, God is the Gospel, an apt title for the point that I'm trying to make to you. Here's what he says. Unless there be any misunderstanding, let it be clear that from this final point of God-centered joy in the glory of God, the goodness and joy of God's glory stream back through the gift of heaven and the work of justification and forgiveness and propitiation and resurrection and crucifixion. And the effect is that now these central gospel events and effects shine all the more brightly with what makes them truly good news. And here it is, the revelation of the glory of God in the face of of Christ. Jesus Christ is the good news. 
Jesus Christ is the gospel. So we may say it this way from this text here in Acts 17 and scores of other passages. Jesus himself is the good news. More precisely, he is the announcement, the announcement of his lordship. This is the good news. It's the gospel announcement. His identity, his personhood, his divinity, his nature, who he is. In other words, the good news for us is that God does not just give us an idea. He gives us himself. He doesn't just give us some rote thing to memorize. He gives us relationship with himself. He gives us himself. The greatest gift God has ever given you is himself. That's the gospel. And as if that wasn't enough, when we zoom in and begin to see the texture of the gospel, if you will, the composition, the core realities that make up this gospel in its whole, because it's never less than Jesus, but it is so much more than him. It is all kinds of things that stem from it. We may say it this way, the gospel elements or the gospel, the core composition of the gospel is that Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose, and that Jesus ascended. We may say it even more particularly this way, that Jesus lived perfectly, Jesus died sacrificially, Jesus was buried literally, Jesus rose victoriously, Jesus ascended fully victorious and authoritative over all things. This is so important for us. You're like, move on, preacher. We can't move on. This is it. This is what we must know. This is what we must enjoy. This is what must cause us to worship. Why? Because in this, we find all that we need. Let me break it down for us even more, just because I'm feeling kind of in that mood this morning. Let's think about Jesus and his perfection. See, if the aspect, the core composition of the gospel is about Jesus living perfectly, that means if you want to know what the good life looks like, you do not look at Forbes, you look at Jesus. If you want to understand and know what it is to honor God and obey him and live rightly with purpose, look to the one who alone is good, holy, and righteous, Jesus. Jesus died sacrificially. That means if you want to have hope from your failings, from your sin, from your brokenness, if you want to look for hope and understand what it means to be fully alive in him, you must look to his sacrifice. You must look to Jesus. Jesus was buried literally. That means when we're overwhelmed with the reality and pang of death, of sorrow, of grief, of evil, of abuse, we can look to Jesus as the truly one who can identify and sympathize with us in our pain. Jesus was raised victoriously. That means in our battle of sin, there is always hope. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you can find victory from any and everything that death has touched. If you are addicted, if you have been abused, if you have been hurt, if you are trapped in sin, freedom from your captivity of guilt and cleansing from your shame is possible because Jesus is alive. Fifthly, Jesus ascended authoritatively. That means there is one who is holding all things together, and it is not you. And so when we are tempted to reach for control, tempted to despair, believing that the world is falling apart, we can find hope not in a periodical, not in a newspaper, not in a candidate, not in a person other than Jesus Christ who rules and reigns over all things and by his word he holds all things together. See, one of the reasons we are constantly in despair, one of the reasons we don't know what obedience looks like is because we stop looking at Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. We think that he is so basic and elemental, we move on to more sophisticated ideas. There is nothing more sophisticated than Jesus. There is nothing more beautiful that you should steal your attention than Jesus. As we see, there are an innumerable amount of implications 
and effects, as Piper alluded to in his quote of the gospel, will we be with Jesus at death? Yes. Are we forgiven of our sins? Yes. Will we find hope and joy in this life and the next? Yes. Will heaven and earth become one in the age to come? Yes. But none of these in and of themselves are the gospel. The gospel is Jesus himself. God himself is the only one who is glorious enough, big enough to carry the full weight of the gospel's meaning and power. He is the gospel. And so when you are asked, when you are curious, when you need to remind yourself of the gospel, what we are doing is reminding ourselves of who Jesus is. And so in Thessalonica, Paul didn't share ideas. He went to the scriptures and he shared Christ. In fact, he reasoned. He explained, he proved, he proclaimed, and he persuaded his hearers to join this gospel community. Look at the latter half of verse 2 on into verse 4. And he went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He explained and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to, be, to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. There are a multiplicity of ways this good news was delivered. Did you notice all of them? Reasoned, explained, proved, proclaimed, persuaded, joined. Some of us are like, I tried to tell them about Jesus. It just didn't work. Did you reason? Did you explain? Did you prove? Did you proclaim? Did you persuade? Did they join? There's a lot going on here. Each of which I think helps us to not just know how we ought to communicate the gospel, but it actually communicates even more about what the gospel is more about the substance of the gospel. See, if the gospel can be reasoned over and against other things, that tells us that Jesus is the logic of God. In other words, he may not give us a watertight argument, but he has given us a watertight person. He has given us the irrefutable son of God. The gospel can be explained. In other words, it can be comprehended. We shouldn't say, oh, it's sort of lost on me. I don't even understand what it's about. No, God makes himself known, particularly through Jesus, who is God with us. This is what we call him at Christmas time, but it's his name every day, Emmanuel, God with us. The gospel can be proven. Why? Because it's true, because it's real. And though you may not have met Jesus face to face yet, right? What we have testifying about him is the scriptures with over 20,000 manuscripts that justify and give weight to the New Testament alone, not to mention the evidence of creation, the evidence of the church, the evidence of your contrition and mine, and the restorative power and justice of God that is alive and well in the world today. All of this proves the gospel. The gospel can be proclaimed. Why? Because it's a reality of hope. We can speak about the lordship of Jesus because Jesus alone is worthy of our uncompromising worship. You see, when we study God's word, it is not merely for our cognition, not merely for our mind to get sharpened, but to inform our worship, to inform our proclamation. We ought to not be able to read a paragraph of scripture without pressing pause and saying, thank you, Jesus. This is some good news. This is good for my soul. Even in some of the deep cuts like Ezekiel that we read from today, just worship God. I trust you. This is crazy. The valley of dry bones, you raised them up. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like resurrection. That's good news. The gospel can be persuasive. Why? Because ultimately it's not about facts weighing against other ideas. What it is is the love of God that you cannot deny. See, he is not one who just came with a message to speak to us, but a savior who came to love us while we were dead in our trespasses and sin. That is persuasive. A God that tells us to fall in line perhaps would be God, but a God who loves us is a God this world has never met. 
The gospel can be joined to the establishment of this gracious community, and therefore we ought to be a gospel people, not because we have done something or been born into the right family, but because God has adopted, adopted us by grace, reconciled us to the Father, reconciled us with one another, and so Jesus has opened up his family to us by grace. That proves that anybody can join it. If I'm part of the church, everyone's welcome. If the Lord transformed and is transforming a self-righteous heart like mine who believes that I'm better than people, if he could do that, which is what he constantly did in the New Testament, what he constantly has continues to do, that anybody can join. If a broken dead sinner like me can be raised from the dead, we, all can. we should all feel that same way about our stories. Hopefully you're getting a picture. Hopefully I'm getting a picture. This good news is summarized in the character of Jesus, the person of Jesus himself. And therefore, Paul speaks this good news to the Thessalonians, and it takes root. And the composition of the church takes root in the gospel. Oh, that the roots of our church would be deeply born within the soil of the gospel and not in our own ideology, not in our own personalities and desires, but in the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It tells us so much about God. But notice now, there's this effect. So now that we've established what the gospel is, watch the effect of the gospel, and people aren't going to like it. So let me just prepare you. Spoiler alert, the gospel is going to have an effect. Some people are going to rejoice. Some people are going to fold their arms and just go, this is a bad idea. This is disturbing to me. Look at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Remember, Paul and Silas first go to the synagogue, as was their custom. They first go to the Jews and communicate the good news of Jesus. And, and notice that word, some. Some of those believe. But then when we continue to read, Luke tells us that a great many Greeks, a great many Greeks, in other words, Gentiles, non-Jews, meet Jesus, confess Jesus as Lord, believe in the gospel. And secondly, not a few women. That means a lot, I'm presuming. It wasn't a few women, and it wasn't just women. It was leading women in these particular influential positions. See, what we are witnessing here is of significant note, that from jump, that the, the church in Macedonia, the church in Thessalonica, was one of rich diversity one of rich diversity. See, we've grown quite familiar, I hope, with the ethnic diversity of the early church. Acts 10, Acts 11, in particular, make this clear. Jesus is Lord both of the Jew and of the Gentile. Especially when we get to Antioch, we see the beauty of the ethnic diversity come to fruition that the gospel makes clear. And this is why and where followers of Jesus were first called Christians. This is really important that we see the first place we're called Christians is when the church is clearly multi-ethnic and diverse. Luke draws this out for us. However, the kingdom diversity is not limited to race and ethnicity. Notice the kind of diversity Luke focuses on here. He draws out the salvation and the joining of women into the early church here in Acts 17. But we should note, Luke's been doing this the entire time. Luke was not here in Acts 17 going, I better make clear that like, women are getting saved too. That's not Luke. This is not Luke trying to figure it out now. This has been his constant habit. See, at once again, the equitability and the inclusion of women, the equity that they are receiving within the story has been what Luke has been speaking about the entire time. Luke considers the many ways in which women have been highlighted. And we're going to go through all of them right now, and it's going to be awesome, right? Because we've actually passed over a lot of them in our 42 messages of 
Acts. Believe it or not, we're actually leaving some things on the table as we go through a 60-week series in Acts. And so we're going to go back and understand how Luke, from the very beginning, has been not only including women, but telling us something about the heart of God in the way that the gospel is forming and shaping the church from the very beginning. So let's turn to the left, Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. You're going to turn or type in Luke 23, verse 49. Luke 23, verse 49. We're going to get real familiar with our Bibles this morning. It's for your good, for mine. Look at Luke 23, verse 49. Same writer of Acts. Here's his gospel account. Here's near the conclusion of it. Luke 23, 49 says this. And all his acquaintances, that's Jesus, and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. What are they doing? Luke is including women within the last moments of the crucifixion. Look down to verse 55 in Luke 23. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb, how his body was laid. Women were present until the very last moment when Jesus' body was laid in the tomb. I want to ask, where are the apostles? They're not there. They, in some respects, have scattered at this point, and the women are those who are graciously, in faith, walking all the way to the tomb to see this thing through to its conclusion, all the way to the tomb. Look at Luke 24, verse 9. We'll start in verse 8. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary... Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Women, particularly Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, hear and witness the resurrection and they are the first to go and share and herald this good news to the apostles who are sort of huddled together trying to figure out what's going on. Continuing on into Acts, flip back over John, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Here we have the commemoration, the choosing of a new apostle. And notice again the detail. All of these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Women are very present in the affirmation, the praying for, the institution of a new apostle who is being called to replace Judas, that this is now the foundation of the church that is going to take shape and root in the ancient world. Continuing on, Acts 5, stay with me. Acts 5, verse 14. Acts 5, verse 14. This is of extraordinary note. These next few points are so important for us to understand. Acts 5, verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. It's of significant note that Luke is making sure whenever he's summarizing gospel growth, he is including the growth of women. And here's why. Look at chapter 8, verse 3. Chapter 8, verse 3. I'm turning with you. I haven't put like a post-it note, so hopefully we're staying together. Acts chapter 8, verse 3. I felt like I couldn't cheat if I was going to ask you to do it. But Saul, look at this, was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Luke is taking care to enumerate the gospel growth, not just with men, but also with women. Why? Because they were being persecuted along with men. Why is that so important? Because obviously the Jewish authorities saw women as just as much a threat as they did men. 
just as much a threat of the gospel to their religious sensibilities and their religious construction and ideals as they did with men. So women being persecuted is of significant first century note for us. Look at Acts 8, 12, moving down to verse 12. But when they had believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the nature of Jesus and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Women now are included in the mark of the new covenant. This is incredibly significant because they weren't included in the mark of the old covenant the same way. Because the mark of the old covenant was what? Circumcision. They, they couldn't play ball in that particular mark of circumcision, right? That particular mark of the covenant. But here now, In Acts 8, they are included within the mark of baptism as a new covenant people of God, identified along with men as the people of God. Look at chapter 9, verse 40. Chapter 9, verse 40. But Peter pulled them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter... She sat up. Here, a woman full of good works and acts of charity is raised from the dead. And her story is central. It is not about her house. It is about her specifically. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Here, a woman's house is a place of safe haven, of meeting, of hospitality, of care, of prayer, of spiritual warfare, in fact. Verse 14 in chapter 12. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Here, a particular woman recognizes the apostle's voice, goes and tells everybody and makes sure that he is welcomed into the home. Acts 16, verse 13 now. Story we've recently covered. And on the Sabbath day, we went out side of the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One uh, who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her eyes to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Here a woman is faithfully praying. In fact, I believe leading this prayer gathering is central to the apostolic mission, the apostolic foothold to a new city and is particularly formative in the foundation of that church in that particular region and her name is Lydia. What all of this shows us in Luke's continual care that now he gets to this this moment where these leading women are saved along with others in Thessalonica is that women are not merely included into the family of God because they bear his image. That is to say, they are not welcomed merely by God because, like men, are intrinsically worth and dignity bestowed upon them by God himself. But much more, the Lord weaves the uniqueness and specific callings upon a number of women and groups of women into the fabric of the gospel narrative. Women are not merely beneficiaries of the gospel, but stewards of the gospel. As writer Sarah Bessie explains, it's a lovely thing to watch men and women working together for the kingdom of God. Women have more to offer the church than mad decorating skills and craft nights. I look around and I see 
Women who can offer strategic leadership, wisdom, counsel, and teaching. Their whole lives are an offering. And sometimes the best way to properly celebrate that offering is with a dozen cupcakes and a fashion show, and that's okay too. In the fullness and distinctiveness of which God has created women, they ought to be stewards of the gospel for the sake of his glory. Such a vision of the gospel brings to mind Galatians chapter 3. It says this in verses 28 through 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. See, Christ makes us one. And as scholar G. Walter Hansen helps bring clarity to this passage from his commentary in Galatians, here's what he says. The vertical relationship with God results in a new horizontal relationship with one another. All racial, economic, and gender barriers and all other inequalities are removed in Christ. The equality and unity of all in Christ are not an addition, a tangent, or an optional application of the gospel. They are a part of the essence of the gospel. Equality in Christ is the starting point for all truly biblical social ethics. You see, the oneness that we enjoyed in Christ makes us unified. It doesn't make us uniform. See, equivalency is not equality. We not become the same. Rather, it makes us united. It makes us one. That is to say, women shouldn't become more masculine in their role, and nor should men become more feminine in order to be one. Just as a Greek should not start acting like a Jew or an African-American, be forced to behave more white when they come to church. Can I get an amen about that? The gospel welcomes us not only into a singular family, but in the fullness of what it means to be a man and to be a woman, a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And here's the rub. Jesus has not saved us so that we can become whoever we want to be. Jesus has saved us so that we might become who he has made us to be. This vision points us back to God himself. That's what's happening here in Thessalonica. See, God's nature and his identity become very clear here when we look at the diversity and equality of the local church as a result of the work of the gospel. You see, because he is both equitable and sovereign. The nature of the church comes from the nature of God. We are not to become something of which he is not. He is not an unfair God, but we're supposed to be a fair people. He is not a God outside of community. He has community with himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So we should be a diverse, unified, one community as our God is. Let's look at these two in succession. God is equitable. He is fair. He's even-handed in that his generosity is imprinted upon us in all of morality and his execution of justice as his image bears. That's essentially what we're speaking of when we speak about God's equity. We're speaking about his justice. In a dual aspect of moral nature, of moral strength rather, God upholds his righteousness by rewarding people, respective by holiness and inflicting penalty upon those who are disobedient and sinful. This dual aspect of who God is was clear in Paul's correspondence to the Thessalonican church. He wrote, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is equitable and just because he upholds his righteousness in utter 
fairness. God is also sovereign. We don't like this. Millennials, this is where we start cringing. He's sovereign. It means he's in charge. His power to rule is seen in his the ability to decide and allow, rather, all things. God is supreme. He's a free moral agent. There is no one who is hindering him. No one can bind him up. No one can conflict his will. He does as he pleases, and that's just it. Not only is God sovereign, that means that he has a good pleasure, but he is also powerful in that he can bring about his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He's not a frustrating God that goes, I have this vision of the world, and these people keep getting in the way. He is bringing about his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He's going to accomplish his will. The question is, are we submitting to it? He wrote about this to the Thessalonians too. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make uh, you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about the supremacy of God. His sovereignty is about his supremacy, his glory, his providential care, his ability and desire to bring about the good of restorative salvation and restoration to this world. God is equitable and that he upholds his righteousness. God is sovereign, and that it is all about his glory. Now I want to help us understand why we don't like either of those things, why we reject both of those things either together or separately, because there's a response here that happens within Thessalonica, within this particular first century church that is going on in our hearts right now. We'll simply summarize our response in a single word of jealousy. We are jealous when we perceive that the equity of God is not carried out in the way that we would carry it out. We get jealous that somebody is getting something that we desire. And we're jealous with God's sovereignty that it's about his glory and not about ours. As the equity and sovereignty of God, I think, were set on display in Thessalonica. Here's how they responded. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were what? Say that word with me, church. Jealous. But the Jews were jealous. That word's not even fun to say. You're like, you're about to, like, we're going to have to deal with this right now. And taking some wicked men of the rabble. Don't you love that language? Some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. They got jealous. This word in the original language in Greek is zelu. Zelu. It means, in this case, to covet or to be envious. The specific jealousy of the Jews was centered on the fruit of God's equity and sovereignty. In other words, he was including leading women and he was including Greeks, and they didn't like it. God loves Greeks too. I don't like that. God loves women too. I don't like that. He's saving them too. I don't like that. So they get frustrated. The sovereignty of God was on full display, and they got frustrated. God saves whom he pleases, and it is always through his son, and our response is often jealousy. Let's break it down more because I don't think you're believers yet. Jealousy is a feeling of anger. It's a feeling of anger, but more precise, it's angered and perceiving that someone has an advantage that you do not have, and that that advantage came to them in a way that was not based on their merit, perhaps a merit that you have. Think about work, Think about your siblings. Think about your spouse. Think about your friends. Think about those in your group who they always have like praise reports, right? And you're just like, I'm just trying to have one of those reports. I don't know how to get one. (laughs) 
And we grow jealous, even in the time we're delving out prayer requests. You're like, dang, his life is perfect. See, sin is, this sin of jealousy is ultimately rooted in covetousness, which, by the way, is one of the Ten Commandments, to not covet. And in that particular case, in Exodus 20, it is when we desire something our neighbor has, land, possessions, or spouse. See, jealousy is also based in this response when someone has an exclusive relationship that you want to be exclusive with you, that you desire, that I desire. But here's the question for us. What makes that so bad? Isn't it just a feeling, right? Some of us are like, just calm down. Like, I can't control my emotions. I just feel things sometimes. I'm feeling my feelings today, right? We say stuff like that. Millennials say weird stuff just to not deal with problems, right? Just feeling all my feelings today. Well, if you have sin to confess, why don't you confess it? And then we can talk about feelings and how often they're fictional and do not lord over you. But Jesus does, and his truth will rule and reign even over your feelings, right? That's ultimately what jealousy clouds our judgment into believing. So why is it so evil? Obviously, if the person whom we are jealous of, if we go hurt them, we're like, yeah, that's wrong. That's not cool. Let's not do that. But I want to talk about the heart level. Let's talk about the heart level. Even before you respond, when it's just a thought, when it's just a seed developing in your heart and mind, why is jealousy so evil? Well, I believe underneath the anger is unbelief. Think about it. When we see that someone has an advantage, we don't. In that moment, we are failing to believe that God sees us, that God cares for us, that God loves us, and that he is fair towards us in the same way that he is fair towards, to someone else. We don't believe he's truly equitable. In fact, we cry out foul, we cry out injustice. And if someone is married to someone, exclusive with someone perhaps that we desire to be exclusive with, and we think that's wrong or not right, or we think God doesn't have someone for us, or that our desire for marriage is more about us than it's about God's will, well, we're failing to believe that God is truly sovereign and that he ultimately is ruling and reigning and he brings all things together according to the counsel of his will. So jealousy and covetousness is really an anger and a disbelief that God is both equitable and sovereign. This failure to believe God rightly is sinful because in that moment we are believing we are more just and we are more capable of bringing about the right future than he is. That's sin. That's idolatry. And that is evil. That's what happens in Thessalonica. The jealousy of the city takes over. They're failing to trust and believe in God, and it stirs them to evil action. Long before this action takes root, a lie and a disbelief in their heart takes root. And here's how it stems out in verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Jason gets arrested along with others. My namesake, God bless his heart, pays bail, gets out, but the disruption had already taken place. Notice this language. They have turned the world upside down. These are missionaries. These are preachers. Oh, but look at what they're frustrated by. Look, look more closely at verse 7 at the end. They've been preaching the gospel, and so the real threat is not the apostles. It's who? Jesus. 
They were royally jealous because all of this attention, all of this power now going to Jesus, turning the Greeks and the Jews and the women, everyone turning, confessing, repenting, becoming part of the family of God now causes deep jealousy in a world that is exclusive with Caesar. See, they were all exclusive with us until Jesus showed up, and there's something we inherently understand about the gospel when we know that it's Jesus. He is incredibly disruptive. He is incredibly disruptive because he is always exclusive. See, they were angry and didn't want to believe that the gospel caused them to submit to Jesus because at the end of the day, we don't really like the equity of God. We don't really like the sovereignty of God. It's very disruptive to the idols that we have taken such care to steward, to pet, to care for, to feed, to love, to nurture. That's what's going on in our church right now. See, divine equity is favor based on God's grace, not on your merit, and we don't like that. God's sovereignty means God's in charge and you aren't. We don't like that. It means that we have to submit to him. We would rather bow the knee to Caesar, who promises to make us wealthy, who promises to provide for us physically, and not to King Jesus. In other words, what the real issue of jealousy is when it comes to the gospel is that we have to admit we have taken other lovers. We've taken other lovers. In church, Jesus refuses to be non-exclusive. He is an exclusive God. The people instinctively knew this. To follow Jesus is to disavow yourself from Caesar. In this respect, Jesus is incredibly disruptive. Not only are they turning the world up, but now two different places, in Acts 16 and now here in Acts 17, it says that the cities were disruptive. They were disrupted. They were thrown up in this sort of chaos. Like, what do we do? The people aren't bowing the knee to the God of this day. They're bowing the knee to King Jesus. That is messing up the order that we have set based on our idols. See, when we come to Jesus, we leave all other hopes, all other loves, all other pleasures, all other purposes, all other desires, all other ambitions, all other dreams, all other personal inclinations. None of these is central any longer. To confess that Jesus is Lord is at the very same moment the proclamation that no one and nothing else is Lord. Because if you confess the gospel, you're confessing that nobody else is good news like Jesus. I'd like to suggest that Jesus alone is worthy of this exclusivity because he is fully just, he is fully gracious, he is fully sovereign, he's fully in control, and in the midst of all of that power, he chooses to love you by giving you himself. Here's the beauty of the gospel. While you had taken out other lovers, God, who is love, came and died for you. That kind of love begins to reason with your heart, begins to explain through the gospel something deeper at the core reality of who we are. That gospel begins to prove himself to you. That gospel begins to proclaim over your life. That gospel persuades us by giving us this new heart. This gospel welcomes us into the family of God to live in a way where we are submissive to his understanding and his execution of justice and sovereignty, not our own vision and value of it. In his seminal work, The Cross of Christ, John Stott helps us to see the epicenter of this place of beauty, of equity, of sovereignty, of grace, of righteousness, of supremacy, and of love. How then could God, he says, express simultaneously his holiness in judgment and his love in pardon, only by providing a divine substitute for the sinner, 
so that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sinner the pardon. We sinners still, of course, have to suffer some of the personal, psychological, and social consequences of our sins, but not the penal consequence. The deserved penalty of our alienation from God has been borne by another in our place so that it may be spared, that we might be spared of it. Here's the truth. Your idols will not die for you. Your idols do not love you back. Only God loves you. Only God is equitable. Only God is sovereign. Only God, in the midst of all of that power, brings us together through unity with Christ in a self-giving kind of way. In all of that power, he was still pleased to decide to choose you by his own will, by his own power, by his equity, by his justice, by his love, to take on the penalty and to give you the joy to choose to forgive you, to choose to love you, to choose to adopt you, to choose to remake you, to choose to restore you, to choose to hold you and keep you. The goodness of Jesus is that when we all fell short and took other lovers, true love showed up. True love came down and with this kind of divine equity, fairness, and justice welcomes us into his family and this sovereignty all by his power. This is the gospel. Not that we have a message to proclaim, but we have a person who showed up, a person who died in our place, a person who welcomes us in, a person who loves us by grace and for his own glory. Would you bow your heads and let's pray to the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness in taking other lovers and bowing the knee to the Caesars of this day. We have not just formed bad habits. We have forged new idols. And therefore, it is breaking and hurting our souls even more. And so would you continue to have your way in us? We thank you for the work that you're doing in our church. It's not because we put a good plan together. It's because you're a good God. It's because you're sovereign. It's because you're just because you're in control, and so we desire, Father, more and more would we humble ourselves before you that you might lift us up. I pray for my brothers and sisters, Father, wherever it is that we are not submitting to you, surrendering to you, confessing, being vulnerable before you, stepping in the light, walking in the light as you were in the light. Help us to know, help us to see that in the light waits for us a Savior, not to condemn, but to forgive not to reject, but to adopt. Not to point out markers of sin, but to come and wash us white as snow. So God, forgive us for disbelieving that you're just that good. Forgive us for disbelieving that you are just that loving and just that gracious and just that kind. Forgive us. Cleanse us of a guilty conscience. Make us your people that we might be more and more the church you're calling us to be here in the northwest side of the city and all over the world. We pray for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.